Welcome to South Bay Chapel. We are going to tackle question number 11 today. What about other religions? Now, as I've said before, this specific question was not answered, but many questions that fall underneath this title or headline were. And so I just sort of synthesized the, the general question out of uh, the ones that were asked, and they were basically about other religions. Just a disclaimer. This message has the potential to ruffle a few feathers, let's put it that way. Um, some folks, when they talk about other religions, uh, Christians primarily, it's a great cause uh, for anger, and it shouldn't be. But it can be, and I recognize that. It could be a volatile situation. So what I want to do is to encourage you to sit patiently, listen, exercise discernment, take notes, have your Bible ready, and in reserve judgments to the end of the sermon. Here, take this message in its entirety rather than bits and pieces. Because if you're like me, I'll listen to a message and then the pastor or preacher will say something that ticks me off. And now that's all I'm thinking about. Who knows what he said after that? But at that moment, I'm like, oh, how could he say that? What does he mean? I gotta, I'll tell him and I'll write him something on Facebook. And, and, and no. Here it is in entirety, okay? Worship is an act of giving your attention to somebody, anybody. We want to give it to Jesus. Okay, so we're going to talk about other religions. If you want to know the details about the literally hundreds of world religions and its thousands of different divisions within each world religion, you're going to be very disappointed. We do not have time in a 40 to 50 minute sermon to go through the details of every religion on the face of the planet. But we are, what we are going to do is, is tackle this in a very general way so that when we do have to deal with something specific, we can uh, do so in a way that honors Jesus. And so other religions, there are, there are literally just thousands. No matter where you grew up, no matter what part of the country or world you live in, there's so many different religions. Within just Christianity... There are thousands of what we call denominations, variances of, of forms of worship uh, where groups and churches and, and people gather in a specific way. So you might be familiar with more of the mainline uh, denominations like Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian. Those are denominations. Why do we have denominations? Sometimes it's because of sin. Here's what I mean by that. You have a group or a church that, that begin to grow. Sin enters in somehow. Maybe the pastor sins or there's a group that's, that's promoting sin. And there has to be a break-off because the, the, it's like poison in a well. The poison in the well ruins the whole well. And so there has to be a division. And that's, that's actually a God-honoring division where you hold up the standards of God and uh, release sin to let it be by itself, to, to let those people go and, and, and have what they want, basically. That's a way to honor God in division. But sometimes, sometimes division is, is silly and foolish. Um, you shouldn't raise your hands when you worship. You should. Well, we, we're the hand raisers. Well, we're the hand putter downers. We're going to divide. And we're the first church of raising hands. And we're the first, it's always the first church. I'm the first church of putting my hands down. That's just within our own 
faith, Christianity. Now, outside of that, you have Buddhism and Islam and Taoism and, and, and all these different uh, religious beliefs and philosophies. As Christians, what do we do? What, what, just what do we do? What are we to do with them? Now, we live in an age uh, of tolerance. And tolerance, I'm finding, means uh, is defined like this. Everybody's right except the Christians. That's, that's what tolerance, I think, means nowadays. I thought it meant that we all have individual beliefs and we should respect one another even in our differences. We can, we can love one another even though we don't believe the same thing. I tolerate you. You tolerate me. But I find that it means, hey, tolerate me or I'm going to be intolerant towards you. That's what I find. And, and I think that that latter definition is not the exact definition of tolerance. When I see a bumper sticker on the back of a car that says tolerance with a plethora of religious symbols, I usually interpret that as they don't like Christians. Now, maybe that's a jaded, cynical version of my opinion, um, but that's generally how that washes out. Someone's mad at Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to study or we're going to look at three definitions today. We're going to de define religion. Okay? Um, we don't need to know all of the religions to understand what religion means. We're going to define Christianity or what it means to be a Christian. Because after all, if we, if we call ourselves a Christian but we look like other religions, there might be a problem. Okay? You show up to, you know, Harry's an Eagles fan. You show up to an Eagles practice wearing a Cowboys jersey. There's going to be some trouble, right? You gotta, if you're on a certain team, you should look like your team. We're going to define Christianity, and then we're going to define other. Sounds silly, but it actually will make more sense as we go along. So first, we're going to define religion. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. As you're turning there, Colossians chapter 2 is probably, for me, one of the best chapters in defining religion. In our modern culture, religion means a plethora of things. It can mean spirituality. It can mean uh, deism, where you just assume that there's a God, but you, don't, you think he's unknowable. You, you know that he's there, but how you and him get together is just, we don't know. Um, religion uh, must be defined in its biblical sense. We want to see how God defines religion. You know, I don't know about you, but when I want to know what a word means, I go to a dictionary. Because the dictionary tells me what that word means. That word means. But if somebody else uses it in the wrong way, you know, then I can call them on it. Hey, that's not what that means. That's not the, how that word is used, like the word tolerance, like I just talked about. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. <clears throat> right off the bat, we're starting to see this, this divide between Christ and religion. That, that there is a definite difference between the two. Now, if you're filling out a pamphlet, and that's sort of our graphic today, and, and there's all sorts of different religions posted, Christianity will fall, fall underneath that title of religion. 
Um, as we'll define later, though, it's completely backwards to all other religion on the face of our planet. Religion as it's defined through Paul in the book of Colossians, Paul says you need to be careful. You need to watch out. Because there is such a thing as empty deceit and, and wrong philosophy that has this appearance of looking religious and spiritual, but it, it is of no advantage to us. It, it means nothing in the long run. It's a bunch of hot air. It's a bunch of words spoken, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change your life. It doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your position before God. Empty deceit and philosophy. That stands in stark contrast to Christ the person, not his teaching, not what he simply has just said, but who he is. Continuing Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment, I'm skipping a few verses, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Jews were given a, a, a great series of laws, some 600 plus laws that they had to abide by. Some, some were ceremonial, some were governmental or civil, and some were moral. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the governmental and the civil and the ceremonial ones are gone. Twice in the New Testament through Jesus and through Peter in a vision that he had, all foods were declared clean. Praise God, because pork tastes good, right? Where the Jews were not allowed to eat certain types of food, those restrictions were now gone and satisfied through Jesus. That form of holiness was no longer uh, required. The new level of holiness, it, new to us at least, was one that exceeded what you could eat. Now our, our holiness was not found in our series of actions, but in where we placed our faith. If our faith was in religion, there was no holiness. There was no justification. There is no purification. Paul says, let nobody pass judgment on you because you eat a certain thing or you worship on a certain day. Christians are fascinating to me. Because they'll overlook verses like this and then begin to tell you how God will be mad at you if you eat a certain thing or if you don't celebrate on the right day. Well, if you don't have church on Sunday, then that's wrong. Well, no, the actual Sabbath was Friday into Saturday. Well, well, just let me praise Jesus today. Like, why do I have to wait till Sunday? Paul says, don't let anybody look down upon you for doing that. Some people will, will get on their religious high horse, look down upon you, because of the day or the form of worship you have. If it's biblical, you're doing okay. And what they say doesn't matter. If they, if, they, if they are convicted, if they do not worship in a formal setting on a Sunday, then by all means, there's plenty of churches they can go to to worship the Lord. But for us, we're going to worship Him every day. You know, We're going to praise God every day. We're not going to wait till Sunday. We've got a lot of things to say and do before God. We're going to do it every day. We're not going to, to think that if we celebrate a new moon festival, whatever that is, that, that somehow we're made right before God and the rest of the week we can live as though he doesn't exist. Religion always, always elevates an action 
above faith. Celebrating a new moon, celebrating uh, through fasting, celebrating by abstaining from certain foods on a certain day, whatever, all that can be done without Jesus. It happens every day in a multitude of different religions. It doesn't mean that they're honoring Jesus. It doesn't mean that they worship the one true God. It simply means that they are religious. And Paul says, watch out for that. Continuing, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. I'm going to turn to my actual uh, Colossians book here. You guys can time me, see how long it takes me to get here, because I don't know where it is. Somewhere back here. Philippians. Colossians, here we go. What did I say that was? Verse 18. Yeah. Chapter 2, verse 18. I was just clarifying, make sure I was had you in the right spot. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourishing it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Ah, Facebook is fascinating. Like, lots of things fascinate me. I'm a simple guy. But Facebook... You can – like there are a lot of people who are really fired up, spirit-filled Facebook users. But outside of that, it doesn't seem to exist. That's another form of hypocrisy. But what I find is people constantly – here's a vision I had. Here's a vision I had. Here's a vision I had. It's not that people don't have visions. It's not, what I'm, it's not that people don't see things from the Lord that – that uh, that he is showing them to share with other people. That's I'm not discounting that. It would be an error to go from one side to completely to the other. But what I'm saying is, is that not everybody's receiving a vision. Not everybody is speaking on behalf of the Lord. Not everybody is is seeing something that's outside of them. Some people, it's just their imagination. And we've got to be able to discern. Based on the word of God, not on the person, not on the vision, not on their merit, and not by what they've done, but based on the word of God. Is that true or not? I saw a vision of this, that, and the other thing. Okay, well, what does the word of God say? Because God won't give a vision that contradicts his word. If, if God has laid out something in his word, whether it's, it's a prophecy or what have you, it will happen in that way. In a few moments, we're going to look into the book of Revelation, and, and that book is one of the books that's most uh, widely interpreted incorrectly because so many people want to know what a lot of these things mean that John saw. And John himself, as he saw them, he didn't know what he was saying. And there are so many people that have such concrete proof that this is how it will go down. And I would just encourage you, I'm not saying that they're wrong because no, it hasn't happened yet. But what I will tell you is this, is that the Jews thought they knew exactly how Jesus would return or that he would come, that, that he would come and he would destroy the government, that he would come and set up this, this, rule, this kingship, this ruling uh, authority physically, that he would overthrow Rome. And, and, and they got that wrong. He came to overthrow sin, Satan, and death. He came and did much more. 
So all I want to say is that we have to be careful when dealing with things like prophecy because some of these things aren't for us to even know because we're not going to exist in that time frame. That there are things that, that even the apostles, as you read the Gospels, they see Jesus throwing tables. And at the moment, they're like, what's going on here? But the word says that later they remembered, ah, oh, the scripture, the verse that says, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, in the moment, they didn't understand, what is this? But later there was this revelation, this, this revealing of, oh, that's what was happening. And so Paul says, Paul warns, watch out for people who tell you to be holy or pure through abstaining from things by worshiping angels and by, by all these visions they might have. Many people worship angels. Angels are, are, are spiritual beings created by God. They worship God. Anytime you read in the Bible an angel meeting a person and that person bowing down before them, the angels very quickly say, whoa, 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 get, get up. Nope, you don't bow to me. You bow to God. Are angels crazy? Yes, you read the Bible, they're big and they're huge and they're fiery. They're not little fat cherubs with little wings that could never support them playing little harps. That's the imagination of man. What we find in the Bible are, are like warriors. You find men like, or, or, or excuse me, angels like uh, Michael and Gabriel who are, who are defenders, proclaimers and messengers. You read in the book of Revelation, John saw these angels. They were just massive and huge and scary. And he would bow to worship them and then he'd tell them, no, get up. They'd say, no, get up. You don't worship me. We worship Jesus. And so for those of you who worship angels, today's the day to stop doing that. You can, you can understand that they're different than us, that they're sent to help us, that they, they do have a place and a position in our faith, but they aren't to be worshipped. Jesus alone is to be worshipped. They worship Jesus. We worship Jesus. <sighs> Lastly, in verse 20, Paul says, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And he quotes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that will perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. A lot of really good religious sinners in our world today. We, we, we set up these, these boundaries. We call them legalisms. We set them up and we think that if we accomplish these things, we'll be found holy before God. In essence, religion defined as anything, any action that we elevate, any method that we lay out to bring us closer to God. So whether it's lighting a candle, saying a scripted prayer, chanting, worshiping a, a saint, quote-unquote, of this or a saint of that, uh, worshiping angels, worshiping a, a person, worshiping a church, th these are all religious activities. And here's the truth. Everybody, everybody, children and adults, young and old, Christian and non, is religious. Everybody. Everybody has a set of rules that they abide by religiously for, for life to be approved by something that they worship. So, so some folks don't worship Jesus or they don't worship a God. They worship their job 
or their spouse or their children or a hobby or a sports team or alcohol or drugs or sex or women or men they, they worship something everybody worships something all people are religious atheists agnostic everybody has these rules that they've set up to make themselves righteous in essence religion is simply those methods that we establish to make ourselves righteous before anybody even Jesus so when I talk about religion and religion being bad and and religion is not what we're aiming for this is sort of the definition that I'm working from that the actions that we do the things that we do that we think in our minds bring us closer to God are indeed religious and and here's the truth they don't bring us closer to God so let's define Christianity now what does it mean to be a Christian if you've ever watched things like Fox News or CNN they'll tell you that much of our own country is quote-unquote Christian but the problem, it's not that it's not true, but there's a problem with the way that they define Christianity. The way the Bible defines a Christian and the way the world defines a Christian are starkly different. There's a stark contrast. From a national poll, it might be somebody who says, yeah, I pray to God. Oh, Christian, bing. But wait, which, which, which God? Yeah, I pray, bing, Christian. Yeah, I go to church, bing, Christian. So they have a, a different set of of descriptive terms to define what a Christian means. In reality, the amount of Christians in our country is actually quite small, probably less than 10% of people. That for every 10 people who might appear to be Christians, there's probably maybe one at best two who are actually biblically defined Christians. What does that mean? What, what, how does the Bible define Christianity? Christians are in Christ. In the New Testament, you will find this phrase, in Christ, some 200 times. My favorite is in Romans chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1, which, there, which says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a definite line. You are outside of Christ, you are inside of Christ. You're either in or you're out. There's no middle ground purgatory where you vacillate back and forth. You either are a, 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 a you're outside or you're inside. That phrase is there to show us that Christianity following Christ is more than just a set of things we do. It's our standing before God. A Christian is somebody who has placed the whole weight of themselves into Christ through faith. Through faith, we believe that Jesus is God. Not a secondary God, not a demi-God, not, not an angel like the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Uh, he's not the brother of Satan like the Mormons believe. He's not a created being. We believe that he is eternal and infinite. We believe that 
that he is the God man, every bit God, every bit man. He, he left heaven to come to this earth as a child, as we just celebrated uh, over the week or last week. Um, we, we believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he grew up, uh, that he was respected by men, that he stepped into this earthly ministry, that, that he is the very Son of God, the propitiation of man, that his death on the cross alone atones for my sin, our sin. That it does more than just, than just cover our sin, it washes away our sin. That he alone, his death alone, is sufficient to pay the, the, the price of judgment on my head that, the, the, that I have brought upon myself through sin. That indeed, humans are sinners in need of a Savior. That Jesus not only died on a cross, but he was dead for a few days, and then he conquered death. There's a pop, it's not a popular theory. It's actually a very small uh, following theory, but um, they call it the swoon theory. That Jesus didn't really die, that he just kind of got knocked unconscious and laid in the tomb for three days. Um, if you've read the account of Jesus' crucifixion, you know right away there's no way he just knocked out unconscious. If you want to read a good book about that, there's a man named Lee Strobel has a book called The Case for Christ. And it goes into great detail uh, sort of debunking uh, the swoon theory. That indeed Jesus did die, that he, he gave that last breath, he said it is finished, and then he, he was dead. That, that after being buried for three days, he rose again and conquered sin, Satan, and death by his sacrifice. That he walked for, for days and months after that, talking with people that some 500 witnesses, the Bible says, saw him and interacted with him, including the apostles with the exception of Judas, who hung himself. We believe that Jesus ascended to heaven. He literally went back to his father and then sent the Holy Spirit. He did not leave us as orphans, that he left sending his Holy Spirit to not just guide us and direct us, but to fill us with the very power of Jesus to fulfill the life that Christ has died to give us. We believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that, the, that our Trinitarian God is one but three, that he is... He is one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they're all equal with different distinctions and offices. So while the Father sends the Son, the Son dies. Not the Father, not the Spirit, but the Son dies in our place. That the Son leaves, but sends back the Holy Spirit to fill us. Different offices, different distinctions, but one God. We believe that every person who puts their faith in Jesus is forgiven. That means if you today were to come to this altar and say, Pastor Tony, I'm a murderer, an adulterer, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm a cheat, I'm a deceiver, and, I, and I'm holding back right now. But I know I need forgiveness that as you repent to the Lord, as you receive his offer of grace, that you are forgiven, that your sins hung on the cross with Jesus. When we talk about Christians, that's what we're talking about. That's what the Bible talks about. Not just that you go to church. Notice I didn't mention church. I didn't mention how many times you prayed. I didn't mention how many times you read your Bible or how many Bibles you have. 
those things are, are outcomes or, or, or byproducts of being a Christian to begin with. Non-Christians read the Bible all the time. They pray all the time. Muslims pray. Buddhists pray. It doesn't mean that their message is going to the right person. It doesn't make them a Christian. These are the, these are the earmarks or the definitions of what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't matter who your mom or dad was. It doesn't matter how on fire your kids are. You. What do you believe? And if you believe this, nothing brings you closer to God by being in Christ Jesus. In the same way that Father and Son are one, intermingled together, that we are the body of Christ, that we are in him, that we are as close to God as we could ever get in Jesus. So the idea of, of lighting a candle or saying a prayer with a holy man or going to a certain place is completely bonkers because we're already in this place where we are in Jesus before God. The Bible says that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of his Father. We're not going to get any closer than that. It's like holding your children in your hand and then them lighting a candle to get closer to you. Like, son, just stay right here. Daughter, just, just let me hold you in my lap. I love you. You can't get any closer than this. When we talk about Christians, that's what we're talking about. The condemnation that hung above our heads when we were outside of Christ rather, has been washed away by Christ. So that by putting our faith in him, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe in the cross. Yes, I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in him. Now you are forgiven. It's by faith. It's through grace. It's not by any action that we take. We simply believe. And for some of you, 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 you struggle with belief. And that's okay. Because you can believe, but still run after Christ. You don't have to go back to unbelief or, or, or any, other, any other form of worship. So that's Christian. If somebody asks you if you're a Christian, and you want to know what that means, that's how you should define it. That's how the Bible defines Christianity. It's very simple. I probably complicated more than I need to, but, but in reality, that's how enormous that word is. Now we're going to define other. There really only are two, two categories of, of religion on this planet. There's Christian and other. Christian and other. All other religions of the world fall into the other category. As we have defined religion and as we have defined Christianity... There is this line, you are on one side or the other. What other? Just as a side note, some people think, well, Jehovah Witnesses, they, they worship Jesus. Mormons, their name is the, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, the, you know, Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints or whatever. They must worship Jesus too. Are they Christians too? I would say no, and here's why. Not to, and remember, take the entire message. I'm not saying that they're lesser than us. I'm not saying that we're better than them. I'm not saying that there's no potential for salvation. But I know that according to their doctrines and beliefs, they believe things like Jesus being the brother of Satan. I know that they believe things like Jesus being a created being. That we can become gods with our own planets. And we've got to have lots of kids to inhabit those planets. Lots of people use the name of Jesus, but don't worship Jesus. In, in the Bible, there's 
people who try to invoke the power of Jesus without Jesus, it ends very badly for them. It's nothing new. It will continue until the day we die. If you have somebody with a position of power, there will always be somebody trying to take that name and use it for their own good. You know, you, you, People who know famous people are always letting you know they know those famous people because they're invoking the power that's found in that name. There are non-Christians who love the power of Jesus but not his authority, so try to invoke his power, and it ends badly for them. It does not make them a Christian. The, can we take the gospel and change it, though? Oh, the world's a diverse place. There's lots of people. The message is kind of, you know, in essence, it's kind of bloody. It's not the most PC. Can we change the gospel? No. No, we can't. The book of Galatians was a book written by Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to confront a church that was watering down and changing the gospel. They weren't doing it like from day one. They were doing it subtly over time. You know, the virgin birth, I don't, that, that's causing a lot of division. Let's chuck that. And does he really need to be born of a virgin? Like we could just omit that part and keep telling the gospel. Was Jesus really God? It, you know, when people start asking those questions – was he really God? I mean, you can explore those questions, but sometimes those questions are motivated by rebellion or, or, or a passivity that doesn't want to stand up for Christ. Well, let's just omit that part. Let's just omit this. Let's, let's start introducing the Old, law, the old Testament law. Because you know what? Nobody ever fights you if you don't want to eat pork. But they fight you if you want to pro proclaim the name of Jesus. Nobody fights you if you want to light a candle on, on your mantle to some, you know, some God. But they will if you start telling them about Jesus. Can we change the gospel? No. Can we make it different in the sense that maybe in certain contexts it can be more relatable uh, if we if – we, make it palatable to the people we're going to serve. That's a possibility. Here's what I mean by that. I would never deliver this message that I am saying right now if I went back with the kids. I would not stand in front of them and yell at them. I would not start telling them, talking to them like I am now. I would change my message, or my approach to the message rather, to suit the audience that I'm about to speak to. If I was going to preach to a bunch of young men, I'd preach a lot like this. If I was going to preach to a bunch of people who I'm, I respect and think have the mental capacity to, to take this in, then yeah, I'm going to preach like this. What if, what if it's my mom? What if it's my dad? You know, I might, come, I might come in a little different manner. What if it's just one of you by themselves? I'm not going to stand in front of you and yell in your face. The Bible tells us to proclaim. That's kind of what I'm doing here. But on an individual basis, I might proclaim in a much different way. I'm not going to change the message. It's all going to be about my delivery. Can we change that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for, for a, a guy who's just a jerk and a, and a woman who's been sexually abused, the same message might, might change one and hurt the other. And we don't want that. We don't want to approach everyone with this, you know, vanilla, broad-spectrum way we want to be sensitive to other people you know paul did this when he when he went before the areopagus you know he 
he went to them and said, you know, I see that you're a very religious people. He didn't come in just firing both barrels at their faces and saying, you're all sinners. Wow. Starts off by saying, you know, you guys, I see you're pretty religious. All kinds of statues throughout town. Even one to an unknown God, and that's the God I'm going to preach to you about. His name's Jesus. Classic. But here's the point I really want to talk about today. And we're almost done. Bear with me. The long sermons are good, and they're biblical. So get on board. What is our response? Because there are some folks who, because they're Christian, believe that they should be allowed a certain sense of pride or haughtiness because of the choice or because of the, the grace they have received. So now we can destroy other people for what they believe. We can't force anyone to believe like us, but we certainly will do that if we are haughty and arrogant and prideful about what we believe. Uh, there's a man by the name of uh, Ravi Zacharias and had the, the privilege to go and listen to him preach in North Syracuse a few months back. He was, he was a great preacher, but what I was most uh, intrigued by was his delivery. He was very firm in his beliefs, and he was very uh, direct in his message. But he's a man that goes from place to place, answers a lot of questions, deals with what we call apologetics, explaining what we believe in a way that was respectful. So much so that he has been invited multiple times to preach at the official Mormon tabernacle in Utah somewhere. To preach not Mormonism, but the gospel of Jesus. And some people have been like, you can't do that. I can't think of a group that needs Jesus more. If you have the ability to go into a place where nobody else can, go in there and preach the gospel. Don't say they're not worthy. Neither were we. If somebody looked at us and say, yeah, they're too rough around the edges. They don't deserve Jesus. We'd, we'd die in our sin not knowing Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Thinking of yourself too highly is a sin. But you know what else is a sin? Thinking of yourself too lowly. The key common denominator is thinking of yourself too much. If you're walking around saying, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I'm the Christian that everybody measures themselves against. There's no fault in me. Okay, that's sin. You're haughty, you're lying, you're probably a hypocrite, and you're going to come crashing down. But then the other end of that spectrum, oh, you're, I mean, you're basically a Christian Eeyore. Oh, boy. Why would Jesus love me? You're kicking a rock down the road. Nobody's, nobody's ever going to listen to me or respect me. Low self-esteem is equally as sinful as high self-esteem. We don't want to think about ourselves too much. We don't want to think about ourselves too low. We want to think about ourselves the way Jesus thinks about us. We're sinners saved by grace. It's this, to me, it's this perfect balance. I'm saved because I was a sinner. And the medium between is that Christ loves me. To bring me up from sinner. Not to make me my own God, but to, to bring me up out of that place of sin. That he no longer looks at me as the, as the dirty, snot-nosed kid who's just always in sin. That he has cleaned me up completely. That I am now his child. That I bear his name. That he is mine and I am his. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, of Jesus Christ. But we, that's you and me and us, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Church, if you have received the gospel message of Christ, if you have heard that through Jesus alone you can be forgiven, if the desire of your heart is to be forgiven and you find forgiveness in Christ only, the Bible says you are like a weak clay pot. How many people here have ever dropped a clay pot of some sort? It shatters. If you've ever had a terracotta thing, it just, you just drop it, boom. It's altogether hard and brittle all at the same time. Just a, just a, strike it just right and the whole thing's brittle. The Bible says that we're like those clay pots. But inside the clay pots, we have been filled by Jesus. The message we have is priceless, beautiful, awesome, amazing. But the vessels that hold it, eh, not so good. Weak, frail jars of clay we aren't we aren't the message what we do is not the message jesus is the message he is the one we proclaim this makes us both a proclaimer of the gospel and a hypocrite all at the same time because at some point we're gonna have to tell these people that we believe in a jesus who is sinless who forgave us and we're not that great that he loved me enough to take me out of that. Fo folks, I, I gladly will tell you that I'm a hypocrite. It's the folks that avoid that that end up being hypocrites for a really long time. Because I can't tell you that follow this because I'm sinless. Nor does God intend to take you and do the same thing. It's actually the reverse. Follow me because I'm following Christ because he forgave me because I need him. Because I am a sinner. There are things that I wish not to do, but, but I do them. And there are things that I know I should do, and I don't do them. And I echo the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7 and 8, that I'm a horrible wretch, but Jesus is not. Jesus loves me, and Jesus loves you, and Jesus forgives me, and he wants to forgive you. Our, our status before God should never elevate us to a place of haughtiness, and it shouldn't ever be forsaken so that we think that we're nothing. We should recognize that we are clay pots with an awesome message inside. Think about Jesus making water into wine. You know, that first miracle that he did. You know, just as a sidebar, Jesus never, or Jesus never used perfect people throughout time. David was called a man after God's own heart at the beginning of the story knowing that later he was going to sin with Bathsheba, knowing later that he was going to number the people, that he's going to be passive and his son was going to try to overthrow his throne, he was still called a, a man after God's own heart. And Mary, I think that Mary gets, in Protestantism, Mary gets the shaft, man. She's always, she's always, you know, because Catholics worship her, we're like, no, don't worship her. And we just throw her under the bus. But we got to remember that God chose her to bear the Son of God, to bear his Son. But that doesn't mean that she was sinless. In the story account where Jesus turns water into wine, 
they're at this wedding and Jesus' mom shows up because the, the wine is gone and says, hey, Jesus, make more wine. And he says to her, it's not my time yet. And she turns to one of the servants and says, do whatever he says. Moms, you do that to your sons, don't you? Sons are like, hey, no, I'm not going to do this. Moms are like, yeah, you are. And you're going to like it. Mary didn't listen to her son, who is the son of God. And, and he still performed that miracle. Now, that was a sidebar. So go back to the clay pot thing. It says that he brought in these big stone jar things that were used for ceremonial cleaning. They filled them with water, and Jesus turned them into wine. But not garbage wine. Not like the kind of wine that, you know, comes in a box. We're talking about wine that was made beautifully. It was awesome. The, the people in attendance said, oh, you saved the best wine for last. Jesus made probably the best wine that the earth has ever seen. And this beautiful wine were in these big clay pots. The message of Christ is beautiful and, and overwhelming and awesome, but we are not. One of the most stabilizing and equalizing thoughts I have prior to a Sunday morning service and knowing that I have to proclaim the gospel, is to realize that I don't have to be great. I just had to tell people that Jesus is great. It's not about my message or what I see and things like that. It's about the gospel. I'll tell you that. And in that, God is glorified. And I am not. I'm just Tony over here on the side just telling everybody, look at Jesus. Look at him. He's awesome. Not me so much, but he's really good. And so don't let, don't let it become a haughtiness. When you see somebody who's of another faith, don't be quick to judge them. Start to find ways that you can minister to them, to show them the gospel. Because truth be told, without this knowledge of Jesus, they're going to die and go to hell. All the while thinking that they're going to serve, that they're serving the right God, that they're serving the right religion. They think that they're going to the right place, but they're not. That should drive us to Sympathy, that should drive us to compassion, not haughtiness and arrogance. Are, are people going to be haughty and arrogant towards us? Absolutely. If you turn on the television and you see any reports about Christianity, 99% of the time, it's something that we did wrong. Or that's perceived to be wrong because the culture says it's right. We're never going to be taken seriously. We're never going to be celebrated. So many folks want... Want Hollywood to do all this stuff? You don't want Hollywood to take over Christianity. Well, they made this story about Moses. They didn't get it right. Yeah, because it's Hollywood. Well, they did. That's not the story of Noah. I know. A bunch of sinners made a story about Noah and got it wrong. Gasp. No way. I thought they would have nailed it on the first try. It should move us to compassion, man serve and love you know what you you at some point i want to tell you about jesus but until then i'm going to show you jesus you don't believe in the same god that i do but i believe in a god that wants me to serve you and give to you and love you not because you're worthy of it on the contrary in the same way that i was unworthy of it and he gave freely to me so here are the questions what is the best way to answer a Jehovah Witness when they say that we have no soul 
and that Jesus raised, I think that Jesus did not raise Lazarus from the dead. The soul is one of the most mistaught concepts. Where people mean soul, sometimes they use spirit. And where people mean spirit, sometimes they interject soul. What does soul mean? What is a soul? Do we all have a soul? Okay, here's what a soul is. The soul is the very seat of who you are. It's what makes you you. We all share in the same Holy Spirit. Same. Paul says this in, uh, I think, First and Second Corinthians. We all, we all receive from the same Holy Spirit, but we all have different souls. Now, there's some of us here that that very inner core being of who we are makes us sleep on our back rather than our stomach. The very core seat of who we are prefers bacon to sausage. The very core of who we are likes dancing with the stars or just hates reality television in general. The very seat of who you are is what makes you you. That's your soul. Some people come into Christianity and then suppress their soul. Sometimes that's a good thing because their soul is tainted by the spirit, uh, by not by the spirit, by, by sin, and their soul wants to do things that's wrong. That needs to be changed, and God's good at changing that. But then they start to suppress things like creativity. They begin to suppress things like expression. Instead of just using the vocabulary they're given, they begin to speak Christianese and saying the word blessed all the time, thinking that they sound more Christian. That's our soul. That is, in general, the biblical definition of soul. So the real problem here is not what Jehovah Witnesses say. The real problem is, what's the truth? And that's what the truth is, biblically. If the Jehovah Witnesses choose not to believe that, that's their prerogative to be wrong. And I don't say that judgmentally. I don't say that. I'm saying that based on what the Bible says multitude of times where the Bible refers to our soul, the Psalms and and, and, and the New Testament, Jesus and, and others uh, refer to us having a soul. So we have one. So there really is no argument from the biblical standpoint. But the question hits on a very important subject. Some of us really want to talk about other religions. We really want to study other religions. I would warn you. First of all, you're never going to anticipate every question somebody's going to ask. A Mormon comes to you and asks you, you're not going to know every question. There are some that, you know, they're going to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Was Jesus God? Like, did he really die? Things like that. We know they're going to ask those kind of questions. But we can't anticipate every question. What we need to do is study the Word. You study the Word, and then you will find yourself in those positions being able to answer those questions. In the same way that if you shoot a gun at a target for a really long time, when the time comes to shoot something, you'll probably nail it on the first or second try. Because you have put in the time and effort to practice when you weren't actually in front of, in front of some game that you're hunting. You took the time to, to know what it felt like in your body to shoot this gun. You have this muscle memory of what it feels like to fire a certain weapon so that you could aim it accurately and all that. So when the time comes you can actually fire it in a positive way. The Bible is much the same. If you spend your time studying the Word of God, and by studying, I simply mean reading it, investing time in it, 
when the time comes and somebody asks you a question, you will find yourself being able to answer those questions. Oh, where did that come from? Can I see, you know, can I see through the to the future? Like what? I have like a superpower. No, you just put time into the Word of God. And for somebody like me, you know, I don't spend a lot of time memorizing verses. I think it's a great pursuit if you can do that. Awesome. But I, I in the same way that I don't memorize every word that my wife says. I don't sit down just waiting for every word she's going to say and then try to repeat it back to her. I, I, I read to know Jesus. And so that should be our pursuit. And know this, that every minute you spend pursuing another religion, even for educational purposes, is a minute that you have taken away from Christ. There's a day and a time where I was fascinated by the book of Revelation and the Antichrist. Or the Antichrist. Oh, fascinated. Who's the Antichrist? Bill Gates, Obama, Osama, Saddam, John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan. Who was it? Who's the Antichrist? No. Was it the Teletubbies? Who is the Antichrist? That's where I put my theory. And so I read through this long list, and I'm just like, I'm like at my computer, like, yeah, moving. At the very end, the most polarizing, the most convicting phrase ever was, maybe instead of pursuing the Antichrist, you should pursue the Christ. I was like, ah, oh, oh, this wasted time. Instead, I'm going, I'm chasing shadows and vapors, and I could be studying about Christ. I find other religions fascinating. I love to see how people think that a certain action or motion makes them closer to God. That if I kneel, that God hears me. Like if I stand up, he doesn't. I know right now, I love watching people and how they act religiously. Seeing how they think God hears them and knows them. But I know that for every moment I spend on that endeavor, I miss a moment I can spend with the Lord. And so I just try to be more wise with how I spend my time, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. Question number two deals with the book of Revelation. Also deals with the Jehovah Witnesses. What about the 144,000? What is it? Is it in all religions? Um, I know who asked this question because immediately after they sent in the little scrap of paper, they came to me and said, we want to know right now. <laughs> and so I'll keep their identity uh, safe. They're not here today, so it doesn't matter anyways. But uh, they, they, they came from a Jehovah Witnesses background. They had that lineage there. And, and so what they had been taught was that there was 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses that would be saved. That's it. And for the early days of Jehovah Witnesses, when there was hundreds and just thousands, it probably seemed like 144,000 people were a lot of people. That's very gracious of the Lord to save 144,000. But then when the Jehovah Witness Church reached a membership that exceeded that, they had to change things. Because now there's more Jehovah Witnesses than 144,000. So the math doesn't work. And numbers are hard, but you've got to try to make that work, right? It's got to be self-serving. Um, can you let the kids know or let Sarah know that we're asking questions now? I was supposed to do that with the first question. So what is 144,000? You've probably heard a multitude of things. Here's what I'm going to say. It comes from the book of Revelation. It comes from a time that we have yet to experience. And so what I'm about to share with you is basically theory. 
it's my best guess or, or experts' best guess. There are a lot of people who study uh, end times. It's called eschatology, and, and they know their stuff. They're very smart individuals. But I would just tell you that they can still be wrong, that they could still ha have you know put the numbers together incorrectly. And when the time comes, this all comes down, might look completely different. So let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. This is where we're going to be introduced to the, to the 144,000. After the, This is only the second question. After this, we'll have uh, some Q&A uh, if you guys have any questions based on this or anything else. Um, we'll spend about 15 minutes in that. But for now, Revelation chapter 7. It's the last book of the Bible. If you got, if you got into the book of Index, you've gone too far. I always get one giggle out of that. Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 says this. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. Cool name, by the way. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, if we stop right here, as my assumption is with Jehovah Witness scholars, we, we could assume that, yes, there are these 12 times 12, 144. There's 144,000 are the elite. They're the select. They're the ones that are going to make it. But like with all false theologies that are based on one scripture or one chunk of scripture and refuses to read past or before, um, we can debunk this pretty quickly. We'll run it through to its logical end. Most times with false theologies, if you just run it through to its logical end, you'll see the folly in it. and You'll say, oh yeah, that's not right. Because if I keep going down this path, I go off a cliff at some point. And I don't want that. And I don't think Jesus is leading me off a cliff. Revelation 7 and 9 says this, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Apparently, John could number 144,000. But this group that he saw with them, huge. Like so big, he said, he just used this phrase, nobody could number them. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. Side note, when we're all quiet in church and stuff, heaven's not quiet. Everybody's always shouting. It's going to be very loud up there. We're going to be able to take it and we're going to love it. If you run this through to this logical end, if it's only the 144,000 that are going to be saved, there's some specifics here that you have to overlook to say it's only going to be a certain number of people. First off, the scripture says that there is men, 144,000 men. That means ladies won't see you in the afterlife, sorry. says also that these were only Jewish men from the tribes of Manasseh and Benjamin and Gad and Asher and Huey and Dewey and Louis. That these are the only ones that are going to be saved. Okay, so if you run it through to its logical end, only Jewish men will be saved. Now go down to chapter uh, 14. Let me go to Revelation here. Let 
I believe this the 144,000 is mentioned in chapter 14 as well. Okay. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, that's Jesus, and within him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing with their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they, were, they are blameless. If you run it through to its logical conclusion... God only picked 144 perfect people. But the rest of the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So which is it? You see, when we are found in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins. What makes us defiled on the outside is redeemed and cleaned up from the inside out by God. Now some theorize that this 144,000, and there's some... I believe there's some truth to this. I can't say for sure because we haven't gotten there. The 144,000 will be a group of Jewish believers who will proclaim the gospel in end times. There is this, in the book of Revelation, this turning from Gentiles to Jews, unlike we see in the rest of the New Testament. Could it be that these 144,000 are men that get saved, that, that commit themselves to Christ in one of the worst times in all of human history, and simply go out and proclaim the gospel. Could that be true? Sure, that could be true. I can guarantee you this. They weren't, they weren't perfect in and of themselves. They were perfect because of what Jesus did in them. And so the idea that only 144,000 Jewish men would be the only people who would ever be saved, if we read the scriptures and read it through to its logical conclusion, we understand that that's not what it's saying. It's, it's, it's a group of people that John saw that were distinguishable from the rest of the multitude by what they did and how they were how they were set apart by Jesus. So that theory that only 144,000 would be saved is 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 not only false, it, it doesn't hold a lot of water. That being said, let me conclude by saying this, um what do you believe? Where do you find yourself today? Were, were you in the other category or in the Christian category? If you're in the Christian category, praise God. At some point, Jesus got a hold of you and shook you a lot and got you cleaned up. Praise God for that. But if you, based on our definition today, realize, wait a second, I, I, I thought that made me a Christian, but I don't think so. Here's what I want you to do. We're not going to make you stand. We're not going to make you raise your hand. We're not going to... I can pray for you. You can come and tell me that, that today was your day. That's awesome. Not discouraging that in the least. But what I want you to do is not just take my word for it. The pastor said I was saved. No, I want you to go to your Bible. You don't have a Bible? Tell me I will get you a Bible. Okay? Read your Bible. Read the Gospel of John. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Galatians. Read about Jesus. Read how we are all sinners in need of saving. Let the word of God speak to you. Find the things that I have said that were wrong and point them out, but go back to the word of God, to its infallible truth, and lay your life down before Jesus in that way. 
Don't just take my word for it or a teacher's word for it or a ministry's word for it. Let God get a hold of you and let you be in Christ Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll answer some questions. Amen? Jesus, I want I want what you want. And your word says that it's not your will that any should perish, that you are long-suffering, that you are waiting. And so, Father, all I'm praying for is that you would give me patience that you would help everybody here come to know Jesus, young and old. Been to church for a long time, just walk through the doors. That you would get a hold of them, Lord. That they would give their lives to you. That they would repent of their sin. That they would receive the grace found only in your son, Jesus. That for every day of the rest of their life, they wouldn't be perfect, but they would pursue the one who is. That they would submit themselves to the authority of your word. That they would become a part of the body of Christ, known as the church. And that their life wouldn't be free of trial, but that every trial would have a purpose, would grow them, refine them, and make them into the people you want them to be. And I pray this, Lord. I pray this with everything I got. And I pray, Lord, that people would know you and know you and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.